This is The Careful Photograph, and I'm your host, Tara Krynak. This week, our guest is Sama Al-Shaibi, and we are discussing her photograph, Water Bearer, from the series Carry Over. And as always, you can see this photograph as well as engage with Sama's many projects via the links on our website at thecarefulphotograph.com or at thecarefulphotograph on Instagram. Sama Al-Shaibi is a conceptual artist whose work grapples with displacement, war, and exile. Born in Basra to an Iraqi father and Palestinian mother, Sama is now based in the U.S., where she is a professor of photography at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Her exhibition and publication history befits an artist whose practice is prolific and wide-ranging. Although I have followed Sama's work and career for some time now, we only recently met virtually through the Center for Photography Woodstock Symposium on Race, Photography, and Activism. I was so impressed with her passion and voice. Even in that virtual space, one could feel her presence, her energy embodied. In the episode that follows, you will hear Sama reflect upon the centrality of the body in her work and the way she cuts against expectation, activating and acting within archival spaces like an instrument. She says, I think people might think I am always in an archive or researching in museums, But as you can see from my work, my body is my best instrument. There is a whole different kind of knowledge that comes through the body. In this episode of The Careful Photograph, Al-Shaibi shares with us an image titled Water Bearer and discusses the extensive research that went into making it, including her long engagement with the history of the Western gaze within Orientalist photography, particularly its central fantasy of the mysterious and unknowable Oriental woman. Sama reveals the painstaking technical aspects of the historical albumin process she used to make the image and describes a two-year period of learning through trial and error, how to make costumes, how to access archives across multiple continents, how to sculpt objects, how to perform for the camera. Listening to Sama describe her process reminds me that as artists, we have to remain flexible. We have to try to maintain beginner's mind. Sama Al-Shaibi is an artist who does not come to the medium of photography fully formed, but rather stays nimble and always curious and seems to push herself by letting the materials and her body lead the way. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm here today with Sama Al-Shaibi, and we are going to be talking about her photograph titled Water Bearer from the Carry Over series. And Sama, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I think I really want to start with just trying to understand what the photograph is that we're looking at. This is for our listeners. So I'm going to ask you to describe the photograph and then for us to move into its materiality, which I think is really important to the meaning of the photograph. Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me here, Tara. I'm really um, uh, honored to be with your guests uh, and talk about my work. Um, so yeah, we're describing, we're working on the, the image Water Bearer from the Carryover Project. And um, the entire project itself features a central protagonist, a female character in kind of an ambiguous space. Most of the photographs in this project doesn't have a lot of reference to uh, a site specificity. And that is on sort of on purpose with my work because I often um, use the female figure as a site and a location. It sort of comes back uh, through 
Palestinian artwork, historical artwork, where the female figure mm-hmm. is the embodiment um, of mm-hmm. the nation, of the motherland. And um, and I'm not always doing this in my work as a nationalist idea, but that it could evoke a culture, a people, an issue, or a place. In this particular image in Water Bear, you have a, a rammed earth kind of plainish background. It's just a wall and some uh, rocks on the ground. And she is uh, dressed in a, a white outfit, uh, sort of a long dress, an exaggerated skirt, little puffed out by the tool underneath it, white tunic type blouse with kind of long uh, sleeves at the end and a white scarf with a little bit of a hint of a kofia, the black and white checkered scarf um, that is often seen on the farmers and then in, later in life, uh, the fighters of, of Palestine. Um, and she, the most important part of this image is that she's carrying this extraordinarily large sort of life-size vessel. And the vessel is shaped as something that you could possibly hold water or liquid, but it's 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 mm-hmm. evoking a wasp nest or a Maltev cocktail. It's made out of wood, um, so you can sort of see the, the shading and molding of the wood. It's quite big. Mm-hmm. It's she's carrying it over her head literally, and there's a hole uh, in the bottom of that vessel, which kind of indicates that it's a useless vessel. It can't actually hold anything. Anything that would be put into it would spill out. And the entire image is, if one is aware of the image history of Middle Eastern and North African women, it, uh, it very decidedly points to the, the Orientalist era where Western photographers came to the Middle East and North Africa and, and photographed um, the women of the region, often in cultural custom clothing, their, their cultural clothing, I'm sorry, their cultural clothing and very ornate um, kind of jewelry or headwear, ways to sort of depict that their, their culture, their otherness. And a very unifying feature is these water vessels that the women who were the water bearers would wear a hold as they would fetch the water as part of their labor and work. And so these were sometimes carried over their head or in their over their shoulders. And I am reflecting that burden of the image history of women from the East and how they were depicted, and in turn, how the nation and a people were depicted and othered by the West because of it. Before we get into, I have a lot of questions for you, especially about that vessel and more about the clothing. But I think the image also, if I'm looking at it on screen, I see that it has a border, a thin white border around it. And the particular version that I'm looking at is the one that is on your website and is the albumin print process. And the size of the image is 21 by 14. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Inches. Which is quite large for an albumin, if if you know the history of how al- or, or even how albumins are produced, which is it's one of the sort of the first factors or one of the first devices that I was trying to trouble when I made this project. I wanted to break the idea of a small um, collectible postcard or photograph, and this is how these images became popular in the European marketplace. They were collected in albums, in cards, as postcards, and this idea of a very tiny inconsequential female that could like sort of sit at the palm of your hand Mm -hmm. 
almost like a trading card. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so yeah. one of the things I wanted to do is negotiate scale right away. And yes, um, yes. that is of, very large. It is large for an albumin. And the only re- way that's possible in, in, um, uh, in, in, now is because the the invention of of digital negatives that you can create digital negative it's a contact printing so you're basically the size of the image is the size of the negative so okay eight by ten camera four by five five camera that's about as large as you can go you wind up having an image and um but with digital negatives i was able to go larger but only to a certain degree actually my first original plan was to go quite large. <laughs> and then I realized through a lot of trial and error, besides the cost of, of, you know, of silver, um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite uh, punishing as a process albumin because right, it has to be, right. all be brushed on several steps. And it, I live in Arizona too. It's quite dry. So the images were just coming out very uneven, um, you know, what the top of an image would look like, what the bottom of an image. And this was right. about as much as I could push it before the, the whole thing kind of fell apart. Okay. So to back up just a little bit, because I want to understand, I want our listeners to understand exactly how you made this image, because we experience it on screen, but if we were to experience it in person and see its objecthood, I think a lot of what you're talking about depends on on material, on encountering the photograph as an actual object. And so I want to just get a little bit more of a sense of what it took to make this photograph um, for non-photographers. So what is the albumin process? Would you describe an albumin print as a historical process? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then how do you make this image? Like, what did it take to make? Like, what camera were you using? What were the steps to make this image? The technical aspects of it are, it's not, it's not that complicated to describe, but there are parts of me as an artist when discussing my work, which really deal with imaginaries and uh, Mm -hmm. fictional spaces talking about real life histories. Mm -hmm. There's part of that imagining part that I like to keep a little bit sacred. You know, I I feel like Mm -hmm. when you pull back the curtain too much, (laughs) you know, it can lose a little bit of its luster. So I'll I'll go as far as what I feel comfortable saying, especially uh, the process is not a problem, but it's, it's really what it takes to create the image in the illusions of things of what you see, but I'll, I'll describe it as best I can. So first of all, let's just talk about albumin. So albumin is a historic print process. It was popularized um, in the late 19th and early 20th century. It, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation (laughs) of the inventor but it was Louise Desire Blanquart Everard um, around 1850. And so a lot of the first like albumins you will see in the Middle East that were photographed in the Middle East and North Africa by Western photographers. And I also just want to say it's not just Western photographers. They also trained local photographers to work in their studios who also uh, continued the practice, but it was completely form style technique was brought in by outside Western photographers into this region. And so the, what they were using, um, or uh, the, okay, the, one of the big thing about, about albumin and one of its strongest qualities is that kind of mahogany, 
uh, sepia type look to it. But at that over time, it starts to there's like a yellow undertone. And that yellow undertone is the eggs, the egg mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, whites that are used as a binding binding mechanism, along with salt to adhere the silver nitrate and other chemicals to the co- to the paper surface. And so um, that's how it was historically done. Of course, at some point, there was these became more commercialized in that era. And so, um, you know, to what degree in any given space or place, any given studio of what they were hand making or what they were able to purchase commercially varied. But for me, 2018, 19, of mm-hmm. course, none of these things are produced commercially. So they, it's, it's um, working through different recipes that uh, all right. process photographers have put on in their books or online. I was uh, very fortunate to work with my assistant, uh, Brian Ganter, who is a former graduate student of mine, and also as an undergraduate student studied at ASU, and they have a really strong alt process program. And so we worked together, try, trial and error, you know, taking very good notes, just trying to see what would work. Because no matter what these recipes are that you can find, it's mm-hmm. going to shift because you're your materials are going to shift, what papers you're going to use is going to shift how the outcomes are. Your water is extraordinarily like the quality of the water, what's in the water changes things, the strength of the sun, the time of year, the time of day. And so we just, we, it's just a lot of trial and error. And so even certain things that we had to, certain chemicals we had to bring in to get, you know, more contrast or mm-hmm. flatten it out a little bit, these all shifted. And of course, the negatives itself, creating a, a, a negative that could, you know, express depth, shadow, you know, sort of a luminosity that took time. So it was expensive. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I would, I would say though that the results are so beautiful. I mean, I, I am, there is a luminosity to these images, yeah. the high, the detail in the whites, the detail in the highlights of the figure's dress and the draping and the, what I would say, the shadows and the softness that it creates. I think, you know, my, my students, um, and, just listeners of the podcast that are interested in materiality and and the fact that these images they they just convey this almost soft gentle quality it's just beautiful and there is this kind of luminosity so i think that the the way you describe the albumin process as just being just very labor intensive and so i was i was kind of wondering i mean a lot of people that question like why use this process and this idea of labor i think and women's work is really important to the image in its conceptual layers, but also in terms of the process, all of the work that it took to kind of even make this image. Um, So I was just thinking if you could speak to just the laboriousness of the process and and, and what that meant to you and why it was important to work in this particular process. Yes, uh, certainly. I think it's very central to how this even project came about. I mean, this, this, the research that went behind it, you know, it was just my obviously first encounters with those types of albumins that existed historically and, and noticing just as being an academic and a teacher, realizing how every kind of invention of photography and the printing process shifted what images looked like, but they didn't shift in the Middle East and North Africa. 
Africa. They remained in albumin process way longer than the rest of the world mm-hmm. when it's moved on. And that that became a curious question to me, like why, right? Like why mm-hmm. was this hanging on? At first I thought it was just convenience or it's already, you know, investments. Maybe this was part of, you know, what was at that time de- um, being described as the developing world or the third world. And so maybe these getting studios set up was mm-hmm. difficult, the processes there. But none of that actually sort of turned out to be true once I started working with the process. I mean, you know, of course, the beauty and the quality would always be something that I believe would motivate photographers to continue with it. But if you think about how artists, photographers tend to sort of leap onto the newest technology, the newest invention, yes. the newest process, especially <laughs> during that time, right? So why, yeah. did this, why did this hang on for so long? Why am I looking at pictures right. at 1950 still made in this process, right? And yes. I, and so that really was sort of revealed step by step by the research, which is, you know, understanding in the ways that Orientalism functioned. And so, you know, we we understand it through you know the seminal work of uh, Edward Said, the great post-colonial theorist about Orientalism, and and a lot of post-colonial work about Orientalism, right. um, or even Edward is, Curtis, Edward Curtis, exactly. Be. <laughs> yeah, my students are very familiar. We have a uh, portfolio of that work. And when they see the prints, they they think they're from a different period. It's interesting to then try to break that down as being part of the fantasy of, exactly. a, of a Western fantasy. So mm-hmm. it, it seems related to what you're talking about here. It's Absolutely. like, why did that process why was it so long past its, you know, right. it shouldn't have been being used at that time, but it was. Right. Because even in its contemporary form, so like imagining a photographer at 1890 or, Mm -hmm. you know, or 1910, you know, what they were selling, what they were expressing through this medium was uh, nostalgia, a nostalgia for a an older time, a simpler time. Mm-hmm. If you think about photography's invention, <laughs> uh, really <laughs> coinciding with the Industrial Revolution, the changes in urban cities in the West, the kind of smog-filled cities, uh, women labor movements, uh, you know, suffrage movements, unions, the sort of shift and, and thinking about Right. Images that sort of depicted this fantasy, this faraway place where things were simpler and, you know, women's bodies were at the pleasure, were for the pleasure of men. And, um, you know, their bodies themselves were like ancient ruins. All these riff references to like biblical areas or simpler people or simpler time. It was a mm-hmm. fantasy that sold. It. And the thing about albumin is that it already looked aged even when it was yeah. brand new <laughs> you know? well, it's, it's it's interesting because i just think of all of these signifiers of the past and albumin just it just fits really nicely within that idea of like what would signify the or to my students when they would describe your image would say oh it looks old timey <laughs> Yeah. I kind of love that because it's just such a an easy way to kind of understand like what what about that word old timey and then and then to kind of break that down and think about that a little more is that they wanted that. They wanted us to be situating these photographs in this fantasy of the past and the aesthetics and the expressive quality of that medium that you're using. Um 
And then, and then, so what does it mean now for you to use that process? Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a few things going on here um, with me. Well, one, I I felt it was important. Um, I, I learned a lot from working in in any medium that I'm working in. I think they mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. have something to say, and they are part of the concept um, and content, the delivery of that content. And so it's not uh, that I am some alt process guru. I, I don't, uh, <laughs> no, I'm not, you know, I don't. No, I, I don't, know. I know. I, I feel my like website, we work you, the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see like when we work in video, we work in whatever yeah. medium we need to work in. Exactly. And, and, and so it's like, yeah, right now I'm working with LIDARs. I mean, it's not even <laughs> a camera really. I don't know. I'm sitting here trying to figure out data visualization. I'm like, what is going on? These are points. They're not resolution. I'll figure it out. But I, you know, this is, this is the idea is that there's something to be, you know, let, let the medium sort of talk to you and, and teach you something. And there's a lot of things I, I learned. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things that I, I could read in a book and study about the history of albumins and the photo mm-hmm. the orientalism, but none of it became explicit to me. And I didn't learn what those things actually meant um, until I was in the process of making. Yeah. If you look at that, any of those photographs, it's, it's mm-hmm. complicated because, uh, it's me. I'm the photographer. I'm the subject. I have to create um, and design a costume, all design costume. My mom sewed the costumes, but I designed the costumes. Um, I had to design ah. and fabricate the, the sculptures. And I had, then I had to get the, the, the negatives made and then have to go through the whole process of printing and learn those processes as, as I'm making it. So each one of those is a, a painful a labor of love, right? And to get to what they were. And so I couldn't just, oh, like, let me make all of the costumes ahead of time and let me make <laughs> all of the, the sculptures yeah. and I'll, then I'll have the shooting week and then I'll have a printing. I, I couldn't do that. So for two years, I basically was working as I went. And so the project evolved because I was learning and I was reconsidering and rethinking with each of these photographs. And so I would like revisit them and revisit my ideas and explore what they meant. One of the things I had read in my research was how the figures themselves appeared like frozen ruins, right? And like ruins was something, <laughs> things like this were always interesting areas for the photographers to to go in their sort of imperial <laughs> trouncing around the, the yeah, world. Yeah. The bodies themselves often appeared just as stoic, just as, uh, you know, uh, frozen in time. And I, I assumed some of that came from the fear or the power dynamic between photographer and sitter and what kind of agency she may or may not have had in those images. I'm just, I'm curious about, um, the reference images. I mean, I, I'm, were you looking at a particular archive and, or a collection from a particular studio that are located in a museum or what, what archive were you accessing? Um, I was archive. Okay. I, I, when you're talking about the, the historical images of albumins, mm-hmm. you asked yeah. that. Like I've been looking at these Orientalist images and like the idea of Orientalist images can span many different cultures and there was this website called like Orientalist Photography. And I was looking particularly for images of the Middle East and North Africa. But I was just kind of wondering, is there a name of 
a photographer whose images you were looking at in particular, or a certain archive online that I could also link to, um, just so people could look at what kinds of images you're talking about. The the images that I got to really handle and photograph yes. and do whatever I wanted to do with was the Solary collection in, in Northlight uh, Gallery at ASU. Liz Allen was very generous, allowing me. It, it was kind of crazy. I was up there just doing a exchange with our graduate students and their graduate students mm-hmm. and like having crits. And I went mm-hmm. in to see their whatever the show that was up at the time. And they had the Solary like collection catalog sitting um, on a coffee table. And I just didn't know that those images were right there, basically two hours away from where I live. Right? And I'm like, uh, so everything I'd seen before was in museums, but it's always been very hands off, right? Like they're up behind frames or yeah. glass and <laughs> I can't photograph anything. I see them in right, books, right. but seeing things in books, is not like handling um, a collection. I mean, part of this, part of doing this podcast is to, to say, what do we need to know to understand this particular photograph. And you've gone through quite a number of things. And I say in order in order to not in order to understand this photograph as a critique, there's the absurdity of the vessel, there's the scale that you're using. Um, you know, the albumin scale is just 21 by 14. That's huge. Um, but there's also this element of like it it feels contemporary to me because it 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 also is a contemporary artist who's also the photographer. And I think it was said best in this essay for women's work. I loved that introduction to this this photograph where, yeah, Yeah. it says, in this meticulously constructed and styled scene, the artist is present in triplicate as photographer, as subject, and Arab woman. And I think you know, that is also really important to understanding the photograph as critique is the fact that you have three roles in this photograph. And Mm. could you talk a little bit about, you know, those three roles that you're playing and the idea of performance and your body in the work? Well, okay. So in this particular image specifically, and you know, when talk about carryover, it's, it's, it's layered because I didn't come out, come at it um, with an intention of speaking to the real sort of complexities Middle Eastern women um, are challenged with by a specific nat- nation. Okay, so I, one of the thing one of the things that's a um, that's often highlighted in my work is my hybrid Palestinian Iraqi identity. My mother's Palestinian, mm-hmm. my father's Iraqi. Mm-hmm. I was born in Iraq moved to the States at some point. And so this idea of displacement, being a refugee, being Palestinian, being Iraqi, being all of those things at once is often yeah. um, layered in the work. But but like my project Silsila and this project Carry Over, I really um, wanted to come at it uh, in the same way that these, not in the same way, but from f- how the Orientalist photographers approached the construction of, of the oriental woman and i when we use the the word oriental that was the way they referenced um the middle east and north africa at that time i feel like i want to ask one last question and more about the title carry over because i think there's so much uh, first of all it's a really poetic title It, it carries it can carry so much meaning and i wonder if you could 
talk just a little bit about the idea of like what what is possible to carry? What are the other meanings and layers in that title carryover? There are many aspects to the carryover project that speaks to women's labor um, and women's work. For me, in my specific context, um, my mother and my grandmother, you know, both displaced twice in their life from Palestine to Iraq and then Iraq to the United States because of war, really were the carriers of our culture and our family history and our sense of self through what I really consider their labor through their their, their handwork, uh, primarily embroidery, making clothes. It's not a great word for an English, but seamstress or embroiderer or like a dressmaker. These are like all sort of collapsed into one word in Arabic. It doesn't really come out right in English, but they are, they do all of those things. And so whether it's, um, you know, a baby blanket or my elaborate wedding dress, anything that is Mm -hmm. being made is, has the histories of our people. And for Palestinian women, especially the embroidery work are narratives, embroidered themselves to tell stories. And this is not different from other cultures um, where, you know, the flora fauna of the place, the kind of um, uh, relationship to land uh, is all expressed as narratives. And Palestinian women learned to do this growing up historically, and they would embroidery their, embroider their own village uh, motifs into their clothes. And so you can actually mm-hmm. tell by looking at a dress very quickly which village, um, what part of historical Palestine and contemporary Palestine women were from. And so that knowledge is something that was very, um, very came into my practice very early from my thesis work. I started working within that that subject of, of, mm. of uh Palestinians, you know, settlement on the land and their relationship to land as told through narratives of embroidery work and mm-hmm. pushing that a little further to my mom and my grandmother, knowing to preserve, to, to take the family photographs when they were um, exiled uh, as a kind of realization that they were not going to be able to return and that they, that those photographs were these kind of containers for memory. So the idea of containers for memory, for identity, for history, and a kind of a resistance that come through the image itself and what you can do with it it sort of is the foundation of a lot of my work. Sama, thank you for engaging with me. I mean, there's so much to think about. I want to end with every episode with um, a prompt, and it could be anything, right? I mean, I, I feel like we've talked about so much, and there's so many layers to your work. Um, gosh, your students are lucky, and I feel so grateful that I got to talk to you one-on-one about this work. Um, well, I love your work, too, and I've been studying your work forever <laughs> and teaching your work forever, so we had to flip this around at some point. And I, I mean, know. So my I students, know. I, I haven't oh teach, gosh. I mean, my students would be so excited that I'm just even here. Uh, I do a lot of uh, exercises in my own uh, work. I mean, I think people think of me as an artist when I talk about research, about always being in an archive or... Mm-hmm. Um, looking at a book or being in a museum. And, and I do a, a number of those as well. But I often like, um, if you can see from my work, I really feel like one of my best instruments is my body, right? Like that is whether it's performative yes. or whatever I'm doing, the practice of being and doing it teaches me more than anything I usually can get out of, well, I'm not saying I don't want to compare, but it, it's 
there's a whole different kind of knowledge that comes through the body. And so I have yeah. a lot of prompts that I ha I give myself and my students um, where I really like to think of my body as an instrument and how I can recontextualize my relationship to the world around me uh, intellectually, physically, um, sensorially, even like psychically by what I do with my body. And so some of the easiest things is just to have a set of directives that, that you do through walking. I think walking is a extraordinary uh, uh, process for, for learning, for idea cultivation, um, for experience. And so my prompt really is not to like overthink this very much, but, uh, and you, maybe your students already do um, these kinds of exercises as is. I, I really like going on what I call sense, sense mapping walks. And I think our eyes are very, very dominant as photographers, but even if just as people, I mean, every, especially now in an age of mm -hmm. the internet image production, you, your eyes, you're just, and, and social media, I think happens a lot with the young people too. Like, Oh, what can I take a picture of? Right. Like really quickly, or how can I like form mm -hmm. this into a square and put it on Instagram? So I try to get out of my eyes a little bit, even though it's like so central to what I do. Yeah. Sometimes I just want to experience things physically that I don't, um, see so well. And, and I, and I, the only way I know how to do that is by kind of forcing a route, usually a route that I'm very familiar with and try to experience it a very different way. I mean, we're so used to just sort of bouncing between points um, as, you know, modern people, I am at home, I need to get to work or I need to go to the grocery store. And, and so whether we listen to music or put podcasts or talk to somebody or distracted by all the things that we have to do, you know, we're not really present in our physical body as we go from place to place. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of moving and being really present in your body is the goal of this exercise where you select one of your other senses and the hardest one would be taste but um you know you <laughs> could do taste if you wanted i guess um I, I find that uh listening um and touching is really really uh powerful and so i try to go through some two points you know 20 minute walk it, it takes a little bit of mindfulness in the beginning to keep moving back to the sense because your eyes keep wanting to see, um, but really right, right. experience, yeah, experience from point A to point B through a different I sense. I love this. And just pay attention. I'm going to do this. Oh my gosh. It, it is really altering. It, it, it totally, besides just reorienting and re and shifting mm -hmm. your relationship to a place it shifts your relationship to yourself and the way you think about things it yeah. to me it unearths ideas and experiences that come into my work um in really surprising way and it's a very grounding thing to do when i travel when i'm in a new residency mm -hmm. when i um when i'm stuck you know when i feel like i've got a bit of a yeah. block Mm -hmm. uh, this is a really excellent exercise, uh, you know, um, and so I, I've even had students who, who've done this thinking about their emotional body from A to B, you know, like an emotional sensory oh, experience yes. that they felt as they move for everything. Mm -hmm. So you're, I, I would just say, people like, oh, I mapped it through sight. I took all these pictures, but I think that's something we really know how to do. I really I know that. Yeah. Yeah. I really think if you could do listening, listening will teach you a lot. It'll, right. it'll show you distance. It it'll like deep listening. Like those, uh, those, Pauline Oliveros um, listening maps. Those are amazing. I did that in a poetry workshop with um, Roberto Tejada. 
think a couple summers ago at the Jack Kerouac School. How cool. <laughs> this, this, is, this is amazing. And this is exactly just, I think we're, we're also just looking at screens so much. We're, you know, I'm just trying to, trying to get more in touch with the body is actually such a great exercise. Um, uh, thank you. Yeah, it's fun. It's this like you can, you can really start to think about your sense of scale, how close or how far, mm -hmm. what becomes loud, what you want to hear, how it makes you feel. Do you feel safer? Do you feel out? It's really interesting. And you wind up, I don't know how to say it's a, it, it's to me, it's kind of uh, besides it just being very grounding. It usually is breakthrough material for me to kind of experience my work in another way, experience whatever challenges or ideas I'm trying to work through, understand. It gives me new knowledge and knowledge that is not easy to tap into elsewhere. So that's my prompt. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sama. That is amazing. Well, I've taken up way too much of your time. No, this was wonderful. I really enjoyed I, it. I think, yeah, no, we have so much material. I don't know how, Sean, you're going to edit. <laughs> I don't know how you're going to get this one down. Um, but thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sama. Have a beautiful weekend. And thank you so much again, Tara. This is really, I had so much fun. It was wonderful.